You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So if you want to invite you to turn there, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to take a break from Ecclesiastes. We'll pick that back up um, after Christmas. But for now, I want to share a word with you that's been shaping my life. And just to give you a little backstory before we read the text, um, growing up, I was a pretty anxious kid. I actually had three ulcers by the time I was in first grade. True story. Uh, was in counseling uh, not long after that. And though, I mean, I was a pretty happy kid by and large, there were still seasons in my life where I experienced crippling anxiety and depression. And honestly, if it had not been for Jesus, I literally would not be here today. I can honestly say Jesus literally saved my life. But here's the deal. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, he did not heal me, at least not completely. And what I mean by that is, um, as I stand here today, even as a pastor, I still at times struggle with anxiety. Um, I don't have extreme lows like I used to have, but I definitely still have seasons where I feel pretty melancholy. And the reason I share that with you is for two reasons. One, I want you to know that if that's where you find yourself today, you still battle with melancholy and anxiety and all that, um, here's some good news. You're not alone. Um, there are people in this room, including myself, who are on this journey with you. And then secondly, I share that with you to say this, though I am not where I want to be, I am definitely much better than what I used to be. And a large part of that is because of the teaching we're going to look at today. And so this is a text I want you to know before you read it. It's not only been shaping my life, um, but it has the potential to lead you out of the sea of anxiety and melancholy and into a brand new kind of freedom. Okay, so with that, let's stand together out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We believe the scriptures are active and living, and as we read these, it's just as powerful as as if God was standing here speaking it in the flesh. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through verse 18, we'll put it on the screen for you. I'm reading from the NIV translation. This is the word of God. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, let's just read that together. It's just so short. It's on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you so much for music. We thank you for the opportunity to wake up today, to come into this room where we're shielded from the elements of the weather. We thank you for your word, which was given uh, to us by you so that we can know how to have a relationship with you and with others and to experience the life you've created us to experience. So would you right now, through your Holy Spirit, just move and minister to each heart in a very unique and special way. And it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Pretty easy, right? Uh, one sentence, three short, easy to wrap your head around, straight to the point commands. But here's the question. How does this become a reality? Uh, how do we get there? How do we become these kind of people? People of celebration, prayer, and gratitude no matter what. Well, to help answer that question, let's just take these one at a time. First, rejoice 
always. The word rejoice there in verse 16 uh, is the Greek word kerata, which can be translated as rejoice or to celebrate. And the idea behind it is what Paul is saying is he wants us to learn how to take pleasure in all of life, which sounds pretty good, right? Um, this is actually right in line with what the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants. Remember, we've been talking about this. Here's a couple of verses from Ecclesiastes. Um, chapter 8, verse 15, the teacher, who we believe is Solomon, says this, So I command the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person than this, to eat and drink and be glad. It's actually a Bible verse. Uh, chapter 9, verse 7, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. It's a command. For God has already approved what you do. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just believe in that reality. God has already approved what you do. This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Thessalonians 5. And if you notice this command here to rejoice, right? Uh, to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. It's not only possible, like it's expected. Because again, it is a command. To rejoice always, it's not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, it'd be good if you would try this on. It's not simply wishful thinking, but this is an imperative. It's something we're commanded to do. And therefore, it's very important we get this. What this means, please hear me, is despite popular belief, joy isn't just a feeling that comes over you when all is right in the world. Now, it is that, but it's also something you choose to do in obedience to Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. And so think about it like this. There are times in our life where joy kind of feels like it passively just washes over us. It just kind of happens to us. And here's an example. Um, last weekend, um, most of you know, by the way, backstory, I'm a soccer coach. Do you guys know that? It's a pretty big deal. I have 10 nine-year-old little girls yeah, on my soccer team. Um, and in the regular season, we weren't very good. We actually went one in seven. That's not a good record. Um, we went into the tournament, however, last week. We were the last pick to win the tournament, but guess what happened? We won the tournament. Okay, thank you. Yes. Gonna practice celebration. In my mind, I saw that going as a standing ovation. Um, so, yeah, disappointment. That's all right. So, um, we won. We actually, in the championship game, we beat a team that was undefeated. They'd not lost all year. And actually the week before they'd beat us seven to nothing, but we beat them. And, uh, when the whistle blew, I mean, people, I mean, our, our, our team went crazy. I mean, they were laughing and jumping up and down. They were hugging one another. They were hugging me. I had one dad come up to me and say, you are the Nick Saban of soccer. And I'm like, yeah, I never thought about it like that before, but I am. And so, um, Man, it was, it was a great moment. And I've got a picture. I think we can put it on the screen. I asked a, a parent if I could share this. A parent, uh, the very next day, it was last Sunday, sent me this picture. This was one of our, actually our best players. Her name's Layla. And she drew this picture for me. It says, never give up on it. And so she was so happy even the day after, right? It was just spilling over into this art that she wanted to give to me as her coach. And so there are moments like this, right? Where joy just kind of passes by, just kind of, it, come, it comes at us. It washes over us. And these are moments, right? We wish we could freeze in time. But then there are other moments where joy has to be a deliberate, tenacious act of the will. There are seasons in life where you'll be tired or sick or grouchy. Times where it feels like nothing is going right. And in these moments, listen guys, we have to make a conscious decision out of obedience to Jesus to rejoice. 
And my guess is today that this will be a paradigm shift for some of you. Because some of you grew up believing that joy is just this kind of like random feeling that passively just kind of settles upon you. And you have nothing to do with it. And again, joy can be kind of like that. It can be passive, right? Again, think of the soccer illustration. But this is also something we're commanded to do. And not just here, but you see it all throughout the scripture. Uh, for example, Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Zephaniah three nineteen says, Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart. Philippians 4, 4, maybe one of the most famous uh, passages. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. These are just a few verses out of many that I could have chosen where we see God commanding us to rejoice. But rather than reading those verses, let me just stop and ask you this question. What kind of God actually commands you to be joyful? Absolutely. BJ said, a joyful God. And that is exactly right. You know, we're going to talk about this in our Advent series a lot more, um, which by the way, next week we kick off the Advent series. It'll be all decorated in here and pretty. But one of the, the sermons I'm going to preach is on joy. And, and what I want us to think about, and we'll talk more about it again in the weeks to come, but despite popular belief, God is not a celestial killed joy. We read all these rules and we think, oh, well, he just like basically went in a line and was like, hey, what's fun? Don't do that. That's not the way God rolls. Like whenever you look at creation, literally God is singing over creation as he's creating it because it's so beautiful and so amazing. He can't help but just enjoy it. And then out of an abundance of that, share it with us so we too can enjoy it. We read in Zephaniah, he rejoices over his children with singing. I think about the gospels where we see Jesus come on the scene. And in Colossians, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1, it says he's the radiance of God's glory. So if you want to know what Jesus, or what God is like, look at Jesus. And apparently, Jesus enjoyed food and drink so much, the religious leaders of the day accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, we know he wasn't those things, right? He was perfectly self-controlled, right? Uh, he's a sinless son of God. But think about this. Jesus was actually the kind of person you wanted to invite to your party. And he's the kind of person who'd show up. And if he ran out of wine, he'd just make more. So Jesus is full of joy. And if you are his disciple, he wants you to experience the same level of joy. I think of that beautiful line in John 15 where he says, I have told you this so that your joy may, or my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That word complete literally means overflowing. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you have submitted your life to him as Lord and Savior, he says, this is my heart for you, that despite the challenges and the difficulties of life, you will experience an overflowing joy. And if you're like, okay, well, how does this happen? How does this become a reality? Well, fortunately, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, y'all remember whenever I was going on sabbatical and y'all went through the Fruit of the Spirit series, right? One of the Fruit of the Spirit is joy. Well, how do we experience the Fruit of the Spirit? Well, Paul tells us a few verses before actually giving us the Fruit of the Spirit. And he says this, the way that you experience joy is by walking and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think about this. Oftentimes, this is the way we, we want it to work. Like, like, we want God to zap us with joy. So we're like, okay, I'm going to get out of my knees. I'm going to pray. Hit me, God. Right? Or, or like, I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because I know the pastors keep saying it. So here we go. I'm going to read a little Bible roulette. Hit me. Right? Or I'm going to show up on a Sunday morning, 
And I am going to raise my hands and like, God, I hit me with joy. And here's the thing. Sometimes God will do that, but not very often. That will rarely happen. And the reason this is, is not because God is distant or he's aloof or he doesn't care, but rather it's because true and lasting joy, please hear me, the joy that doesn't just last an hour in this service, when the Luke and everybody's dancing on stage and we're all under life, but the joy that actually can go on even in the darkness, that kind of joy is always the outgrowth of a life of obedience to Jesus. In other words, true and lasting joy comes in the words of Eugene Peterson, Peterson as a long obedience in the same direction. And this is where the problem comes in. Because if we can be honest, obedience and faithfulness is boring. It's boring. Um, faithfulness requires us to do things like deny ourselves. Faithfulness requires us to say no to things that everybody else around you is saying yes to. Um, it requires us to say yes to some things that everybody else around you is saying no to. Um, faithfulness requires sacrifice. It requires giving of yourself away. It requires, listen to this, choosing to do the right thing even when nobody is watching. And so I just want to stop and ask you this right now. I mean, look, you may not have joy for a lot of different reasons. I'm not here to diagnose why you don't have joy. But one reason very well could be that you're not walking in step with the Holy Spirit. That you are living in active disobedience to God. And it doesn't matter what medicine you get or what therapist you choose or what book you read. If you do not repent and turn back and learn to walk in step with the Spirit, you will not experience joy. And if you're like, well, Jared, this is a hard teaching. Yeah, it is. And I've not arrived. I'm in the journey with you again. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how bad do we want joy? If you want it bad enough, like are you willing to fight for it? It's an important question to ask because, guys, none of us are going to stumble on the joy. It's just not going to naturally happen to you. Not in a world like the one we're living in. Joy, according to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, is is going to come through the life of obedience. And just to be clear, let me just say this. I am not saying that if you are always obedient to Jesus, which none of us are perfectly, but I'm not saying if there's a pattern in your life where you're being obedient and you're being faithful that you will never be sad. I am not saying that, not at all. Like all of us in this life will experience grief and mourning. And honestly, um, talk to any therapist who's worth their weight. Like you actually can't even experience joy if you don't learn how to grieve well. So grief is very important. Like some of you, you're not experiencing joy because you're not paying attention to your grief. So like, please like, don't hear this as some sort of like happy, clappy, artificial, like spirituality. Like that's not what I'm, I'm after. That's not what Paul is after. Like the Bible is clear. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53. We know in John chapter 11, Jesus wept in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was overwhelmed. And if Jesus himself, the perfect son of God had times in his life where he was overwhelmed, there's a good opportunity. There'll be times in your life or good chance times in your life where you will be overwhelmed as well. And so Paul's not saying here that if you are walking in step of the spirit, if you're being perfectly obedient, that you will always be happy. But what he is saying is this, please get it before we move on. The default setting, the default setting for a follower of Jesus is celebration and joy. Do with that whatever you want. 
But the point Paul is trying to get at here is no matter what you're up against, even if life is not going well, even if the wind is not against your back, even if the kids are not all obeying and doing what they, you know, even if life is messy and hard and difficult, we are still called, we are commanded to rejoice always. And if we're commanded to do it, we're given the power to do it. Secondly, we're called to pray continually. Now, a couple things I'll say here before moving on. First off, and I'll put this on the screen for you, p- prayer is a broad category for all and any dialogue with God. Uh, there are all different types of prayer. Don, can you put that on the screen for us? Um, I think you'll see this coming up right here. There it is. And so these are all different types of prayer. You have prayers of praise, uh, prayers of thanks, prayers of petition. That's where you ask God for stuff. Prayers of intercession. That's where you ask God to do stuff for other people. Prayers of lament, a.k.a. venting at God. Like you guys know you can do that. Prayer, as we've said before, is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Go read the Psalms sometimes. It almost seems borderline blasphemous the way we see people were talking to God in the Psalms. And those were actually songs used in worship for the church. And so this is where, you know, prayer can be a place where you take off the filter and you just share with God your honest thoughts and feelings. There are prayers in the forms of questions. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? There are prayers of groaning. Paul talks about that in Romans uh, chapter 8. Uh, there are prayers that come in the form of tongues. Tongues is a heavenly uh, language, a type of prayer. Um, there are There's listening prayer where you don't say anything. You just try to open your, your heart up to the voice of God. And then there is maybe one of my favorites right now this season, prayers of communion, where you don't say much. You don't even hear much. You just try to sit in the presence of God. And the point of all that, if you leave that on the screen for a minute, Don, the point of all of that is just to say, look, when Paul's talking about praying continually, he's talking about you doing some form of that always. Some form of that 24-7, except maybe whenever you're sleeping. So the question is how? Because I'm guessing most of us in here aren't like, check, let's move on to the next thing, killing it, right? Like, like how do we do that? Do we move into a cave? Do, like, do we quit our jobs and join a monastery? Like, What is Paul getting at here when he says that we are to pray continually? Or your translation might say pray without ceasing. And in short, here's what God, or here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that the goal of a Christian is to keep God before your mind all the time. To learn to live in two places at once. And guys, we've talked about this in the grocery store, but also aware of the fact that you're in the presence of God. Talking to your spouse or, you know, working with, you know, people around you, you know, at your job and in the presence of God. Right at the gym or the field or wherever it is, but also being effective aware that you are in the presence of God. Dallas Willard, we haven't quoted him in a long time, so let me share something I know y'all have been missing him. So here's what he says. This is the first and most basic thing that we can do. Keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. We all want to care for our souls, right? How do we do that? Uh, he says, keeping God before our minds. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may be well challenged by our burdensome habit of dwelling on things less than God. You ever been there? You try to pray, try to read the Bible, try to focus on God, and all these other things fill your mind. Dallas Ward says, you're not crazy. That's actually very normal. But listen to this. This is such good news. These are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former one as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our mind will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. Isn't that crazy? If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. This is what Paul is getting at here. This is what he means when he says pray without ceasing. It's keeping God before our minds, learning to live in two places at once. And listen, if you're like, Jared, why does this matter so much? Because this is where life is. 
Like the presence of God is where life is found. It's where you get your energy. It's where you get the, the feeling of love and joy and peace and patience. It is all found in the presence of God. By learning to live aware of and connected to him in the everyday stuff of life. And Dallas Willard and the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament said this is the goal of the Christian life. So rejoice always, pray continually, finally. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. That is very tough. Especially if you're someone like me who struggles with comparison and competition and envy. Give thanks in all circumstances. That phrase, give thanks, it's one word in the Greek. It's actually the word uh, eucharistite, which is where we get our, our word eucharist from, which is the uh, ancient name for the Lord's Supper. And if you've been in our church for very long, you know that we do this every week. We participate in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, where we eat and we drink the wafer and the juice, which is symbolic for the, the body and the blood of Christ. And in doing so, here's what happens when we take communion. We give thanks to God for what he's accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. The fact that now we can be forgiven of all of our sins, reconciled into a right relationship with God, and we can know that because we've been sealed with his Holy Spirit, that there is nothing that can separate us from his love, and that no matter what happens, our future is incredibly bright. Like That's what we celebrate, and we give thanks to God for through communion. But notice, as great as that is, according to Paul, the Eucharist is supposed to be more than just a once-a-week meal. It's actually meant to be a way of life. Which means, guys, think about this, that joy, like thanks, or or, just like with joy, giving thanks in all circumstances is something we're commanded to do, not just once in a service, not just once a year during the Thanksgiving holiday. Again, we're to do this in every, he says, circumstance. And by the way, notice he doesn't say for every circumstance. We're not to give thanks for everything. It's very important. Again, you're not to give thanks for racism and injustice and maybe your kid being bullied at school or whatever it may be. You don't give thanks for that stuff. However, he says you are called, but you're not called to be thankful for everything. We're called to be thankful in everything. And this is why over and over you will see this phrase in Scripture, like in Psalm 116, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's a weird phrase. We don't use that anymore. What does that mean, the sacrifice of thanksgiving? Well, listen, when you understand what Paul is saying, you're going to realize to give thanks in all circumstances, guys, will at times feel like a sacrifice. It'll feel like a sacrifice. This will not always be easy. We will not always feel like doing this. And therefore, for the majority of us in here, we are really going to have to work at being a people who are thankful. We are really going to have to work at learning to cultivate a heart of gratitude. I was reading Winnie the Pooh recently. Um, that's the world I'm living in, by the way. I got three kids under the age of 10, so I, I'm into that kind of stuff. And there's a line that jumped out at me that has just, it's stuck with me. And here's, here's what it says. Piglet, I remember Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Piglet noticed that although he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. It's like, man, that's what I want. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for our church to increasingly grow in our capacity for gratitude. 
Elie Wiesel was someone who had a large capacity for gratitude in all the circumstances. He was a Holocaust survivor, also the winner of a Nobel Prize for Literature, and in an interview with Oprah. Who else to interview on gratitude than Oprah, right? She asked the following question. In light of all the tragedy that you have witnessed, do you still have a place inside of you for gratefulness? That's a good question. To which Wiesel responded by saying, absolutely. Right after the war, I just went around telling people, thank you for living. Thank you for just being human. Who talks like that? Thank you just for being alive. This is a Holocaust survivor talking. Listen to this. The words that most frequently come from my lips are thank you. When a person does not have gratitude, he goes on to say, something is missing from his or her humanity. Nothing says more about you than your capacity for gratitude. For me, and this is key, every hour is grace, and I feel gratitude in my heart every time I see the face of another. Wow. The words that most frequently come from my lips are thank you. So how do we get there? How do we become grateful in every circumstance? Last night I put my daughter to bed and I went into the kind of the kitchen and our dining room area to start cleaning up and I found this like just uh I don't know, a pile of, of what looked like a, a chain made out of construction paper. I don't know if I have a picture of this or not. I don't know if we sent it. Yeah, there it is. I didn't know my daughter had done this, but she had created a kind of a Thanksgiving chain, and every chain had something on there that she's thankful for. Um, here's some of the things that are on there. Food. Here's another one I saw right next to it. Snacks. Ranger, that's her dog. My bed. My dad's truck. I've got a 12-year-old truck. Just yesterday I was thinking, it's got almost 200,000 miles on it. I need to get me a newer truck. My daughter, I'm thinking about, I need something better. She's, she's thanking God for the truck. Soccer. This is a good one here. Dinosaurs. <laughs> Dinosaurs are cool, right? She literally had something for every friend like Lucy Harper like literally every one of her friends were on there Livia every family member is on there um she also on one of them it says me and so I was like I'm thankful for me <laughs> that's awesome and I was talking to her about this after I saw it and she said oh dad I've got so many more things to put on there too it's gonna be so long I thought man God forgive me you know it's like how do we become this type of person who has this large capacity for gratitude no matter what is happening? I want to give you some practical tips. Before I do that, just know this. If this is going to go from being a pop dream to reality, you're going to need two things. You're going to need a lot of grace and grit. You're going to need a lot of grace and a lot of grit. Um, like Wiesel, if you want to become a thankful person, you want to life more, more by gratitude than grumbling, you're going to need to realize that every single minute of your life is grace. Everything you have, including the ability to even give thanks, according to the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is all grace. It's all an undeserved gift, all undeserved gift from the hand of God. So this is going to take grace 
to be reminded of the gospel, right? That's the greatest display of grace. But it's also going to take grit. And we've said this before, but I want to say it again because we haven't talked about this in a while. Grit is not opposed to grace. And grace is not opposed to grit. Grace, we'll say it like this, is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And so if you want to become a thankful person, you need to know this is going to require some effort, some some grit. And what this means, and we've talked about this before, but I want to explain it again. If you're going to become a person who's thankful, not just on Thursday, but in all of, in every circumstance, it's going to require not that you try hard, but that you train hard. And there's a difference between trying and training. And I'll explain it this way. Justin McGarity, uh, he was in our early service. He's a member in our church. He recently completed the Iron Man. Anybody know what the Iron Man is? If you don't, let me tell you, to, to, to complete the Iron Man, here's what you have to do. You have to swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, and run 26.2 miles. And Justin completed it. Um, let me ask you a question. If I was to try to do the Iron Man tomorrow, do you guys think I would complete it? No. Are you laughing? You can just say no and not laugh, okay? <laughs> no would have been fine. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, she, she would be much closer than me. Um, no, if I tried to complete the Iron Man tomorrow, I would die. I literally would die. Um, and what I might conclude is if I tried or if you tried, just if you just went out tomorrow and you tried as hard as you can to complete and you didn't do it, you might just come to the conclusion, I guess I'm just not the kind of person who can complete an Ironman. And that's not true. It's not that you can't complete an Ironman. It's just you can't complete one yet. And what you need is not to be like, oh, I'm going to try harder. The next day I'm going to try even harder. Okay, or you're going to fail even harder. What you do is you don't try harder, but you train harder. Justin trained for like a year and a half for this deal. You got to eat right. You got to put the right practices and habits into your life. And guess what? If you will do that, not overnight, but over time, you, like, yes, you could become the kind of person who could also complete an Ironman. Now, why do I say that? Because the same is true when it comes to gratitude. You might be sitting here right now and think, because of the way I'm wired, because of my family history, because of this, because of that, I will never be able to be this kind of person. I'll never become a person of gratitude who's thankful in every circumstance. And that's not true. It's just that maybe you can't do it yet. And what you need to do is to put practices and habits into your life that will help you. Now, again, not overnight, but over time, become the kind of person Paul's talking about here. So on a practical level, what does this look like? Five things, very quickly, very quickly, if you're taking notes. First off, you want to become a person of gratitude, here's something you can do starting in probably about 30 minutes whenever you're at lunch. Pray before your meals. Pray before your meals. Train yourself to stop and thank God for your daily bread. Have you ever thought about this? There are hundreds of things that have to happen totally outside of your control to get food from the field or the farm to your table. Things that you had nothing to do with. Things that if it wasn't for all that, you would starve. Unless you have a garden in your backyard, and you all should. Um, that's for another sermon. So stop and thank God for that. You're so dependent on God just to take something off your fork and put it in your mouth. And you didn't even realize just how dependent you are on him for that. Thank him for taste buds, right? God could have made us like cows. 
where everything tastes like grass or like cars, or if we get empty, just like go to a tank and fill us up. But instead he gave us taste buds because he wanted food to be pleasurable, to remind us of how good he is. Thank him for that. Thank him for the fact that something had to die so you could live. And you know what that points you to? The cross. Which is why, by the way, communion is a meal. That's why he didn't just say, here's a wooden cross. Look at that to remember what I did. Because something had to die so you could take that in and live. And that's a reminder of the gospel. So just simple. Stop and thank God for your meals. Second practice is this. Practice gratitude as a family. For us, we try to do this around our dinner table, and sometimes it's crazy, and it, it goes wild, and it gets insane, and I usually leave the table, I can leave the table more angry than I was when I got there, or whatever, because I got, again, young kids, but we try to, every time we sit down at our table, we've done this for years now, to just share, every person, there's five of us in our family, to share one thing we're thankful for, either from our day, or for someone else around the table. Just share that. And then every night, like, again, me and Megan, like, we drop the ball a lot as parents, so anytime I share something, I'm always afraid that you're going to think that I'm like, that we kill it. Those of you who are closest to me, you know that we don't. But one thing that we've been pretty consistent at since our kids were born is every night when we go to bed, we pray over them. And what we pray specifically is we thank God for things that we've seen in their life from that day that are, that are just little pieces, little pictures of what God is like. And so it literally could be something like, God, like I thank you that Nora chose to forgive Wyatt instead of hitting him back. I thank you that she's, or, you know, I thank you that Wyatt is generous and that he wanted to give this toy to his friend. Or I thank you that, that, that Moses is playful. That reminds me of God of how playful you are. And he brings a smile to her face. Like, just gratitude. Practice it as a family. Third, for yourself, practice the prayer of thanksgiving. I do this at night before I go to bed. Just I try to fall asleep. Not every night, but the best I can, I try to fall asleep rather than, than grumbling about the things from that day or worrying about tomorrow. Just falling asleep thanking God for little things. In my life, Adam talked about this, I think at the prayer meeting, the, the, the prayer of examine where you actually thank God for 24 things in the last 24 hours. Try that sometime. That's a great practice. And if that seems like too overwhelming, just maybe on a Saturday or Sunday, thank God for seven things in the previous seven days. That feels more manageable. Um, the point of the prayer of Thanksgiving is just to thank God for things we often take for granted. Things like food in our pantries. Clothes on our bodies, a roof over our head. How about this? Oxygen. I have a friend who just recently, finally, hit COVID like four, it's packy, four months ago, and is like just now, like returned all of his oxygen, like supplemental, whatever, the stuff he was using to help him like breathe well. Just returned it. And in a post on Facebook, he said, I'm so thankful to God that today I can walk down the two steps of my porch without needing oxygen, like our supplemental oxygen. Isn't it amazing how, that, that's, that's by the way, it's a, a sermon for another time. That's one of the reasons, by the way, suffering can be such a gift. We don't talk about it that way, but you think about when you're healthy, can't you think of a thousand things you need to be happy? And then you get sick, like really sick, and you think the only thing I really need to be happy is just to get healthy. If I can be healthy, even if I have to work, wherever it's at, factory, teaching, on the back of a garbage truck, stay at home, I don't care. If I can just do that again, I'll be happy. Suffering can be such a gift. Like It can make us thankful for things like walking down steps and not needing supplemental oxygen to do it. So give thanks to God for the things we often take for granted in prayer. Fourth, pay attention to the suffering around you. That might seem counterintuitive, but you know when I was a kid and I would gripe about I didn't get the present I wanted or whatever for Christmas or you know whatever it might have been, something trivial, 
um, my dad would at times say, hey, let's get in the car and go to the hospital. I want you to make hospital visits with me this week. My dad's a pastor. And he would do that because he knew there's something about me being in touch with suffering and serving those who are suffering that caused me to be more thankful for what I had. And so, man, if you're depressed and you're melancholy, like, go serve other people. By the way, did you know it's like one of the number one things a therapist will tell you to do? Like, especially if you have PTSD. It's one of the, like, one of the things they do with, with troops and stuff is just say, like, go serve others. Like, go and serve those who are in need. Those who maybe are in a hospital or refugees in our city. Those who are in the, a mission outreach in a homeless shelter. And then one of the best ways you can do this is by getting involved in an MC and going and serving some of the needs like that. Finally, I would say this, speaking of missional communities, plug into community. If you want to become a person of Thanksgiving, plug into community. You say, well, where do you get that at? Well, in this text, you can't see it here in the English, but all of these commands are in the plural. So a better translation, especially if you're in the South, is y'all rejoice always. Y'all pray continually. Y'all. Give thanks in every circumstance. Why is this all in the plural? Because if you want to be a person of celebration, prayer, and gratitude, you cannot do it in isolation. Can't do it. Which means we all need to stop settling for online or text message only relationships. And we need to plug into community. And here in our context, I'm not saying it's perfect, but the best way to do that is in the context of a missional community. If you're not in a missional community, man, please get in one. Go talk with our Next Steps team. They'd be happy to give you information on that. Again, scan that barcode on your little, you know, connect card there in front of you. If you're in an MC, get in a DNA, get around people who can journey with you towards becoming the kind of person that Paul's talking about here, a person of joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Now, all that said, point of me to say all that is this. If you're going to become this kind of person, it takes, again, grace and grit. And I know for some of you, and we're about done, listen, some of you, I know that you have to be hearing this and being like, well, that's easy for you to say. And you got a cush life, Pastor. You're married, your kids are healthy. You have any idea what my marriage is like? You have any idea what my life has been like over the last year? You have any idea of the kind of consequences that I'm facing right now because of decisions that I made and I'm still having to pay for? Or what someone else has done to me, the trauma or the abuse I've experienced? Like, like, some of you have, without a doubt, suffered more than I've suffered. And I'm sorry that you've gone through that. You've experienced pain and trauma that I've, I have not. I've had my own pain and trauma, but some of you, yes, for sure. If we were to compare, which I know is not healthy, but if we were, of course, you've suffered more than I have. And it could be easy for you to listen to me teach this and say, well, easy for you to say. But remember again, I'm not really the one teaching this. The Apostle Paul is. And the Apostle Paul suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. Beaten, shipwrecked, he was stoned. And I don't mean like stoned. Like bitten by a snake, abandoned by all of his friends, and he's writing to the church of Thessalonica. And what are they going through in this context? They are literally being persecuted just because they bear the name of Jesus. They are losing their jobs. 
They've become social outcasts. They can't even go to bed at night out of fear that a Roman soldier is going to bust into their house and pull one of their family members away, throw them in prison where they'll either be tortured or murdered. And Paul says to them, rejoice always. Pray continually and give thanks in every circumstance. And then look at that last line, it will be done. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Man, I wish I knew God's will for my life. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I mean, like, I wish I knew who to marry. Do I marry this person or that person? Which, by the way, if you're even, if you have options, good, that's good. You celebrate that. That's great. Uh, but who do I marry? Uh, do I take this job? Do I move here? Do I stay here? Do I spend my money this way? Do I buy the truck? Like, I wish I knew God's will for my life. Well, here's some good news. If you will read your Bible, you can know God's will for probably 95 plus percent of your life. Here's God's will for your life. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every circumstance. Do you realize if you would just do that, that'll keep you busy for a while? If you'll try to apply the Sermon on the Mount, that'll keep you busy for a while. If you'll seek to do the things you know without a shadow of a doubt God has commanded you to do, you know what's going to happen when you come to that fork in the road and you're not exactly sure what to do? You'll make the right decision because along the way in the journey, you have become the kind of person who doing God's will has become second nature to you. Again, with all this in mind, guys, I know this isn't easy, especially in a culture like ours. It's not easy to rejoice always in a culture that's like has this blanket of depression thrown over it right now. It's not. It's not easy to pray continually in an overly busy, stressed out, emotionally unhealthy, technologically addicted, secular to the core society. Especially if you have an iPhone, by the way. It's not easy to pray continually. It's not easy to be a people of, of gratitude and a self-entitled country. You ever thought about it? Guys, we live in a pretty self-entitled country that has this you owe me mentality. It's what's wrong with our government. It's what's wrong with a lot of our marriages. It's what's wrong with our relationship with God. As we live in this kind of, this relationship even with God where it's like, God, like, like if I tithe, well, maybe I won't tithe, but if I give a little bit and I serve and I do this, like if I scratch your back, you'll scratch my back, right? I do this for you, you do that for me. And you know what we forget whenever we live that way? God is not your equal. He's your God. And he doesn't owe you and he doesn't owe me anything. And yet, our entire life is chalked full of the generosity of a father like God who created you and placed you in a world where you now can enjoy food and drink and provision and beauty. And by the way, if you were born in America, you were born richer and safer and secure than the most the world could ever even dream of. And more than that, he gave you his only son in the greatest act of love and generosity and grace the world has ever seen. He came down and he laid his life for you so that now rather than getting the hell we deserve because of our sins, we can have eternal life with God who is the overflow of joy in himself.